lost in the whirlwind of Harvard Academia. This is the Bipartisan Podcast. The Eagle has landed. Hello and welcome to a new episode of the Bipartisan Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Swanson. I'm Luke Webster. I'm Nathan Bethlaw. I'm Will Shuffleman. It has been quite a while since we've been able to all get together and record an episode, but life is busy and uh, we will hopefully be getting back to a more consistent, hot, bipartisan post summer where we'll all be posting uh, good content on uh, the podcast and good articles on the website. So uh, welcome back, guys. Welcome back, listeners. Uh, let's just jump right into these uh, to this episode. So we got a few fun topics today, going to be talking about COVID-19 rules, infrastructure, and potentially uh, some potential Republican presidential candidates in 2024. That said, let's start off here with COVID rules. Are they here to stay? From margaritas to go to marijuana deliveries to virtual doctor visits, the pandemic prompted sales to, or not sales, states to ease rules uh, to make life at home more bearable over the pandemic. But the looming end of emergency orders has teed up a policy frenzy in state capitals to make these COVID era conveniences permanent fixtures in American life. Restaurants, cannabis companies, telehealth providers, and other groups that benefited from particular emergency pandemic rules are scrambling to make these rules into law as governors lift emergencies just as state legislatures start to adjourn for the year. Here's a few examples. Before the pandemic, no state allowed to go orders of liquor. Now, three quarters of states do under emergency declarations. In Massachusetts, emergency orders require doctors to be uh, paid the same for telehealth and in-person visits by Medicaid and private insurers. And this is sent to end in December. This obviously is not a topic of paramount national importance, but I think it's a good uh, topic to start off with here. So the question I have for you guys here is, is it a good idea to turn to certain pandemic policies into, or turn certain pandemic policies into pan- permanent law? Could there be any negative impacts down the road? And what else from a policy standpoint have we learned from the pandemic that could be useful in the long run? Will, I want to start off with you, pal. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that this is, you know, one small silver lining amongst the devastation of the last year and a half. I really think there are things that we learned about the, the circumstance we found ourselves in with lockdown and the pandemic that, hey, these things are incredibly convenient and they work and there's no reason we shouldn't pursue them to their, to their utmost. And I would especially highlight telehealth um, as, as a means of addressing disparities in healthcare, whether that's by race or income level or, or you know, rural versus urban access to hospitals is a, is a huge thing that was really highlighted and made even worse by the pandemic. And being able to see doctors get treatment virtually, um, we found out that that works really well. And, you know, for I don't really know why it hadn't been implemented at scale before, but whatever reason that was seems to have been blown out the window by, by the, the way it succeeded. So, you know, what Massachusetts is doing with making the payment um, the emergency payments on parity with one another compared to in-person visits. I, I think that should be something that happens across the country. I think that's something that CMS should look into at a federal level for sure and, and keep going beyond the pandemic because it works pretty darn well. And I think we're going to see hopefully some studies and assessments of its impact. And I have, I have no doubt that it'll be positive in terms of addressing this disparity. So I'm all in. 
Yeah, I think I agree with you for the most part, uh, Will, but um, Luke, I'm going to hear from you next. I'm going to go to you, Nathan, and then I'll come back and give my two cents here. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, I'm just like, I'm, I'm a huge, I don't, you guys in the podcast, you guys know this, but I, I'm a big, uh, I'm a college student and I'm a big fan of DoorDash and like all those kinds of delivery apps. It's, de- it's definitely something to be said for the convenience of it. So I was actually kind of surprised, like when we were going over the outline today, that like there wasn't like you, that you couldn't deliver liquor, like in most, in most, if not all states. Like that just seems like something that I hate to, I hate to generalize America, but I feel like that's something that like America would probably have uh, figured out already. I, I'm in agreement with Will. I think a lot of the things that we've learned from the pandemic in terms of delivery services and telehealth and everything else of that nature, I think there's no reason that we can't keep doing that just as we're continuing to, uh, you know, start to go back to a more normal reality. You know, I was able to go and get a cup of coffee the other day and not have to not have to worry about uh, standing six feet away from the person in front of me because I knew for a fact that they had a, that they were vaccinated. So like, it was just, I think it was, we're getting, it's getting easier, but I don't know if that's necessarily a reason to just get rid of everything and go right back to the way things were. I think a little bit of the changes might, uh, might benefit us in the long term. Sorry, that was a little bit long-winded, but. No, that makes a lot of sense. And Nathan, how do you feel? I mean, absolutely. We've seen a lot of innovation um, come out of re- really this whole pandemic. I mean, I was wa- I was reading, a, I believe it was a Business Insider article, and it's like 15% of restaurants across the United States will probably be permanently closed or have closed. Um, and so whenever you see things like like curbside delivery for food or for for alcoholic beverages or whatever whatever you want to say, um, you know if those if those things help businesses and they help them, you know, be businesses <laughs> absolutely. Like let's let's keep those things in place, whether emergency or whether um full time. But I mean, speaking kind of Luke's point, um, I mean a lot of a lot of the alcohol laws, um, especially in in more rural southern states, I can attest to, are pretty archaic. I mean there are up until Oklahoma, up until a couple of years ago, I believe two years ago, I mean, there was a rule that you couldn't serve any type of alcohol before like 10 a.m. It was like this restaurant was trying to serve mimosas and they had to make a rule so that they could actually do it. Um, and uh, as to also another rural perspective, um, telehealth's huge. Um, it's, it's really hard to get doctors to come and practice full time and in, in rural areas or low, low income areas. And so by making that reimbursement rate the same um, as they would get for a regular doctor visit, um, that's going to encourage telehealth, which is um, in, in most cases, just as effective, if not more effective than, than a regular doctor's visit. And so, you know, I think that a lot of these, these COVID changes are good as far as like restrictions. Um, I, I think that people are going to be a lot more willing to, hey, you're not feeling good and you need to go to work, you need to go to class, you don't have COVID or whatever, but I mean, you think you might have a cough or a virus or something, like put on a mask and maybe we can cut down on flu season or, you know, maybe people are going to be more aware of um, of health and not overworking themselves and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, but but as far as, as far as a lot of the social distancing stuff and the masks go, I think that you're going to see a lot of those expire. And I think you're going to see a lot of states keep them in place, uh, really just depending on 
which parties in place at the time. And so I think that you'll see that be a little bit more divided than you would typically want it to be. Sure. I think I agree with all of you guys, uh, you know, very well. Um, you know, we going to talk to specifically about, you know, delivery for alcohol and, and telehealth for doctor visits. Like, of course, that is definitely something that I think, you know, makes sense to keep around. It's America. Why can't I get my margarita to go and FaceTime my doctor on the way home? You know, that's just, it's simple things that you think you should be able to do. And that honestly, they're good for businesses and they're good for, uh, in, in the sense of the alcohol to go. And they're good for rural residents in the terms of, uh, you know, telehealth doctors where there generally are not as many doctors. Nathan, I'm glad you raised that point. Um, I also like, Nathan, how you brought up the, um, you know, the potential policies of, you know, if you're sick, you know, wear a mask and, you know, don't spread your, you know, your flu around the office. I know, you know, for me personally, flu season on a college campus, I will probably be wearing a mask for years to come because dorm disease is real and it gets transferred around like wildfire. And I don't want to get sick, you know, every fall and every winter, just because I'm going to a busy, you know, college. So I think, you know, for all the damage that COVID-19 has inflicted, there are definitely things that we as a society um, have developed that will benefit us, you know, um, not just in the situation of the pandemic, but also in the future to become a more um, efficient, safe, and healthier society. So um, we'll see where all these, you know, laws go in the future. But I know in Illinois, for one, there was a bill introduced in our house to um, make the to-go sale of alcohol permanent. So you can go to, you know, Chili's and get that margarita for the road, um, which hopefully you don't drink on the road. Uh, but I digress. I think we're we're at a good spot for this topic. So I do want to switch on to our next one, which I'm pretty excited about, actually. Uh, a good old dorm room debate on infrastructure. Let's jump right into this one. So Democrats and Republicans have been going back and forth about infrastructure for the past few weeks after Biden introduced a sweeping $2.7 trillion bill that included funding for physical infrastructure, transportation upgrades, broadband internet, at-home healthcare, research and development, and very much more. Republicans made an initial offer of around $500 billion, saying this spending should focus solely on, quote, traditional uh, definition of infrastructure. After a few weeks of negotiating, here's where we are. The Biden White House has cut their offer down to $1.5 trillion, and Republicans' counteroffer stands at about $900 billion. Not too far off, but the central dispute over what it is and is not infrastructure remains unsolved. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg made a comment that uh, made us all chuckle recently. Fox News Sunday, he said, quote, Americans can't wait for us to resolve our dorm room debate over which policies belong in which categories, end quote, or did they just want us to get it done. So being college students, being our amateur political pundits, all uh, political junkies, let's have our dorm room debate. Biden has said he wants real progress by June 7th on a bipartisan bill, or he's going to scrap efforts and push through a partisan approach like this year's massive COVID relief bill. So the questions are, um, what's going to happen with these negotiations? What should happen? And what uh, is really infrastructure, you guys? You know, what is it? Uh, and since we started off with Will last time, I think I'm going to start off with Nathan this time. And I want to hear the uh, the conservative side and we'll work our way over to the, to the liberal side. Yeah, so I mean, well, I mean, we, we've been having this, this huge change in, in, in politics, and it happens all the time. But you know, definitions change, definitions shift. And so I mean, as far as what is infrastructure, I mean, I'm totally on in the camp that 
infrastructure is the traditional infrastructure, broadband, physical infrastructure, those kinds of things, those actual tangible physical improvements that you can make to to the land, to the communities, to that. Um, I mean, as far as as far as the money, the spending goes, I mean, really, really, the Biden camp just just wants to just wants to put throw money at the issue and get it done. And the Republicans wouldn't be any different. We saw Trump's massive infrastructure bill that was way too high in spending as well. But I mean, it, it really it really is a, a dorm room debate. And it's a it's a it's a little thumb war that we're having. I mean, Biden obviously wants to get it done so that he can say we got it done and Republicans don't want it to get done under Biden because it's Biden and partially because um I mean, you just don't want the opposite president to 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 have that that kind of success. And I mean, just just the the idea that that some of these some of these ideas they're pitching together, like uh, paid paid maternity leave infrastructure and stuff like that, that that human capital idea just doesn't exist. It hasn't been around. And I mean, if they want to make it exist, I mean, I think that that's a, a cultural shift that probably will happen. Um, but I mean. I, I don't think that any Republican can really sit here, any Republican who's currently um, in Congress can sit there and say, well, we don't want to spend the money on it because they spend money on ridiculous things. Um, the, the, the GOP legislature has shown that they're, they're willing, to, uh, <laughs> willing to put their morals aside and vote for, vote for big, big package spending bills when they want to. Um, and so um, I think that the, the, where it comes down is definitely is this actually what we should be spending on an infrastructure bill or if we want to do an overall stimulus package or if we want to do some sort of uh, over overarching, um, you know, R&D bill, let's do it. Let's not package it with the infrastructure bill, I think is a much better argument to make than, you know, it's not infrastructure, but uh, I digress. Yeah, I think I, I definitely understand what you're saying and I'll, um, you know, give a response to it at the end here as we round it out. But uh, Will, I want to hear your response, and then we'll go over to Luke. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Nathan, that a lot of the debate seems to be hinging on just like vocabulary and shifting around, oh, what the hell means what? Um, and that's that's why the Pete Buttigieg quote was kind of just entertaining to me in particular, um, because it just really does seem like the negotiations are a matter of Oh, we're we're at one point five. Oh no no no, we're we're at we're at nine hundred billion. Um, is this infrastructure? Is that infrastructure? Does it's kind of counterproductive. Um, but I mean, I I think we would probably agree on the front that everything that is contained in the bill is you know a worthy expenditure of public funds in the sense that it will pay for itself later. You know whether that's climate resiliency. And you know, upgrade, upgrading build, upgrading buildings for a future where there are more extreme weather events, um, or you know, electric facilitating the shift to electric vehicles um, across across the country, upgrading the physical infrastructure, broadband. I mean, the, the list goes on. Um, with the fifty billion here, the hundred billion there are being spent on. Um, but in general, I think the principle of a large infrastructure bill is something that has been floating around for, honestly, since you know, since the Great Recession. Um, and it's it's about time something gets passed and of a, of a relatively large magnitude. So, what I, what I think is going to happen, you know, what I think should happen is, oh, they sit down, they get to a number, they agree on it, and it passes bipartisan. But that that that's not going to happen. I, I think we're going to see another week or two go by, and this one via reconciliation, 
um, which means they just need Democratic votes to pass it, which was the same process used to pass the uh, um, American Rescue Plan earlier this year. So, I mean, I think two or three weeks from now, we'll see the House and Senate have uh, passed this thing on a purely part on purely partisan lines, um, with Republicans kind of left on the side of the room watching the process. Yeah, I don't think you're you're too far off from what is likely to happen, uh, Will. And uh, again, I'll I want to talk about that too. But Luke, I want to hear from you first. So go right ahead, bud. So I'm I'm going to take a little bit of a harsher stance. While I do think that we do need to spend money on infrastructure, I would just like to point out that we are spending more money than God or man has created. And at this point in time, and I just I'm so I'm I guess I'm hawkish of spending even more trillions of dollars on infrastructure which rightly like we people we do need infrastructure in this country i am just worried that we are going to exacerbate the inflationary period that we're already kind of in uh and if we exacerbate that i don't know how long uh the economy is going to be able to hold out against that so i guess i'm just i'm concerned short term about short-term suffering for Americans who had just come out of a pandemic uh, that might not be ready for uh, more economic hardship. See, I think, look, I disagree with you on the economic impact, I suppose, of the, of, um, the results of a really big infrastructure bill. I think um, it's been proven that infrastructure is actually most effective when you're in harsher economic times because you're able to, you know, finance things a little bit easier. You're able to generate a lot more economic output, and you know, you're able to put people back to work, um, and generally yield net benefits for society. So I think if you know we decide to spend a lot of infrastructure, where whatever that may be, you know, building roads, building bridges, upgrading our broadband, doing all these things, um, sure, it's a lot of spending, but it's also a lot of money going into American companies, going into American people's pockets. Um, and it's money that the, the government could really afford to, or can really pay off. Um, so I would disagree a little bit there, a little bit there on the economic impact. Going back to talk about the overall concept of infrastructure. Um, you know, if you want to get into real semantics about the definition, you know, Merriam-Webster, this defines infrastructure as the underlying foundation or basic framework of a system or organization. So let's get really into that. You know, there's a lot of things at that point that you could call infrastructure. And it really is just a matter of, you know, making the, the term, you know, fit the definition, which you can easily do with just, you know, wordsmithing. Um, going through and, and seeing a lot of the things in Biden's proposal, I think a lot of it is infrastructure. Of course, when you think of traditional roads and bridges, which in America are very out of date and very terrible, um, that definitely needs to be upgraded. Broadband, of course. Um, you know, you could even say paid maternity leave is a form of infrastructure in a sense that it allows uh, American people to, um, you know, function better in our society, if you want to make that argument. Um, I think overall, this is a really good bill. But then again, I'm not surprised that a lot of conservatives are on the fence about it because it is a lot of money. And it's a lot of, you know, um, government spending and getting involved in, you know, in Americans' lives to a point. So, of course, there's going to be a raging debate over it. Personally, I have been waiting for infrastructure investment for years because I am somebody who pays attention to this sort of thing. Um, and I honestly would not even be too upset if they decided to break it down into different bills and pass R&D later, um, like uh, Nathan, you mentioned, which I think they are actually possibly planning on doing, especially if a bipartisan agreement is reached. So um, 
That said, though, Will, I agree with your point that we will probably see a strictly party line vote in a week or so because uh, I just don't think it's going to work out. But then again, I'm also hesitant to see whether um, Kirsten Cinema or Joe Manchin will be on board with it at well at the same time because the Democrats have a very broad coalition they have to convince to support this bill. Um, I, I, I kind of threw a lot out there, but anybody have any responses to that? <laughs> Well, in, in whether whether I think Republicans or even me, whether we agree or not that that human capital is an infrastructure investment, investing in those things is, um, I think that whenever you tie it to the traditional infrastructure, you're kind of holding holding it hostage and saying, well, yes, we understand that roads and bridges and rural rural broadband and those things are very important, but you can't pass it until you pass this this new idea, this what would traditionally be a stimulus or what would be a uh, health and human services kind of ordeal. And so I think that if you want to have a bipartisan infrastructure bill, I think you do have to separate it. Um, and I think that, you know, Republicans that are genuinely looking at it will uh, understand that they still might not vote for it because it is a lot of money. But I think that that's, that's definitely the way to go if you're trying to be bipartisan, as we say on this podcast. And on the on the magnitude, less on the composition point, that Nathan's talking about and more on the magnitude of spending point that Luke slash Tyler raised. I mean, right now we're in an environment where interest rates are ridiculously low. Um, growth is low. Productivity is low. Now, now is the time where deficit spending is required to, to fuel the economy. Um, I mean, that's just, that's macroecon 101. So, you know, it's not really significantly tied to inflation because that, again, that's more of a short-term phenomenon, whereas what's going on with this infrastructure bill and these trillions of dollars in, in public spending will have a lot more to do with with the debt in the long run. Um, and, you know, we, we've kind of seen a paradigm shift in the way since since 2008 when the, the consensus is among economists is really that we went too small with the response to the 2008 recession and that deficit spending um, on the right things like infrastructure is, is absolutely needed when you're when you're in this environment when you know borrowing money is functionally free at this point with the interest rates we're seeing um, and the risk of crowding out private investment is extremely low. So, you know, there's been a bit of a paradigm shift in the last ten years that I think is manifesting itself in, in Biden's willingness to to go so big. And I mean, all all signs point to the fact that this is the right thing to do, just in terms of size. Yeah, and we will definitely talk about this more. Um, I think this is going to be a discussion that, you know, us being, you know, very policy centric people really like. Um, and of course, there's going to be a lot of information and news coming up about it in the next week or two. So we'll be, you know, continuing to do segments on this for probably the next three to four episodes. Uh, and I'm really excited to, to talk more about this. But I do want to move on for the sake of time to talk about our way too early for this moment of the week, Republicans in 2024, which I'm sure we're all going to have very unified and very, you know, bipartisan and, you know, good opinions about. So let's just jump into it. We're only three and a half years away from the 2024 presidential election. And that may seem far, but if you think about it, we are only two and a half years away from having uh, the first candidate for 2020 announce themselves, um, you know, at this point back in 2017, I think. So, you know, it's, it's a valid time to start talking about this. There's a piece on the Hill recently that named the nine most prominent Republicans not named Donald Trump who might be on the ticket after that short, short amount of time passes us by. And here are the candidates 
or potential candidates that were listed. We've got Florida governor and COVID maverick Ron DeSantis, former Vice President Mike Pence, a resident of Will Shepherdman's hometown, cultural conservative poster child Kirsty Nome, uh, the pro-Trump, anti-Trump equivocator extraordinaire, former UN ambassador Nikki Haley, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who we've all seen speak personally, what a guy, um, and Josh Hawley, whose uh, book on being anti-big tech can be purchased directly on amazon.com, as well as former Secretary of State, um, oh, sorry, I already mentioned Mike, Mike Pompeo, staunch conservative Senator Tom Cotton, and rising star Tim Scott. Also, Rick Scott, all the Scots, all the senators, all these very big people from the past four years. Uh, I obviously uh, am a Democrat and I have not paid as much attention to the careers of these politicians. But Luke, Nathan, I know that you guys follow many of these people, of course, them being on your side of the political spectrum. So I would like to start off with Luke here. Luke, it's your turn to turn the shine. Then we'll go over to Nathan and then Will and I will give our rebuttals on why we do or do not like these people and who we'd like to have. So go right ahead, Luke. Okay, so I'm just gonna go. I'm just gonna go straight down the list as you have you got it as you got it written. Go ahead. So starting with Ron DeSantis, um, I'm going to say that I'm gonna agree that he's the, the description of Will here, who wrote the show notes, that he's a little bit of a maverick. Um, I definitely think that he has the ability to. Or he's got obviously he's got name recognition now, um, because he has been painted kind of as the contrast uh, to Gretchen Whitmer in. Michigan and uh, Cuomo in uh, New York. Um, so I think he's got the name recognition. I, I worry that he, I worry about him as a candidate on a national stage. I, he's very, very Florida, if that makes sense. Um, foreign VP Mike Pence, I really don't see him. Uh, I really don't see him trying to run. I, I, can, I honestly think he may just live out the rest of his days. Um, outside of politics, which um, he did, which is I, maybe for the best for him. I don't know if he has the kind of star power for a presidential run. Um, let's see, Christy, no, no. Uh, Nikki Haley, uh, I think Nikki Haley has a, has a strong shot as well. Um, I would put her on the same level as Ron DeSantis. Um, you know, she's got some really, really great uh, bona fides and uh i was impressed with the uh strong stance that she took uh when she, during her time as u.n ambassador um mike pompeo i'm i'm gonna go ahead and say pass on um i uh i i, I he obviously was super super nice to us when uh we when we had the chance to hear him speak and had the chance a couple of us had the chance to meet him but i again i I think he might lack the star power to kind of uh, build a the coalition that's necessary to win a presidential race. Um, Josh Halley, I can see being booed out as well as uh, Tom Cotton. Um, Rick Scott, uh, I would also argue is probably not the best candidate and maybe not even Tim Scott. Honestly, somebody that we don't have have written down but i could see maybe trying to make a resurgence is ted cruz i don't know nathan what are your thoughts yeah so um you know i think that ron DeSantis is probably going to run and i think that ron DeSantis 
um, like him, like him or hate him. He has that populist energy of the wing that, or populist energy in the party, uh, the, the energy of the populist wing of the party. Oh my goodness. I, that was in my mind that I think people are really looking for after Trump. Um, so I would say in, in like him or hate him, his COVID numbers were not that bad whenever you look at just the statistics of it. Um, yeah, I don't think Mike Pence will run. Uh, Christy Nome, I mean, she kind of gives me those, those, <laughs> I hate to say it, but, you know, the, kind of the Kardashian vibes as far as she's famous for being famous. You know what I mean? She's, she really doesn't have a whole lot of bona fides. Um, she's just pretty conservative. She makes a lot of conservative statements. So that's why people are interested in her. Nikki Haley, you know, I'm, Nick, Nikki Haley's great and she's done good stuff. I just, I don't know if she has the has the 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 feeling to go all the way. Um, I've been paying a lot of attention to Mike Pompeo, um, especially uh, in his first Iowa run. He's always on C-SPAN, um, and I really like the anti-China uh, stance he's taking. He's making that a big big platform, and so I think that that's kind of a kind of refreshing to see someone really running on a foreign policy platform. If he does. Um, because I think that that's somewhere that the United States has been lacking. Um, you know, George Bush in, in 2000 really campaigned on that. I want to be the president that fixes home. And then he ended up having to go into Iraq and Afghanistan and being kind of the foreign policy president. Um, Obama was kind of that stay at home kind of idea. And, and Trump was really the America first kind of guy. And so it would be interesting to see someone really try to solidify or desolidify or whatever in the world um, the United States place in or the United States place in the world. Um, it would be interesting to see somebody actually really put some effort into that. Um, Tim Scott's great. Um, Josh Hawley, I don't think he'll get it. I don't think Tim or Tom Cotton will either. They're just too controversial. Um, and then Rick Scott. I mean, I think that Rick Scott's really a lot of the same energy as Ron DeSantis. Um, I think that Ted Cruz will run again. I think that Ted Cruz is probably always going to run uh, for president just because um, he did so well that 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 time in 2016, and I think that he's obviously interested in doing it again. Um, and I mean, it, it is really too early, and we're going to see what happens in 22. Um, if the Republicans take back the House in a sweeping in a sweeping victory, I think that you'll see um, a lot of different people run than they would if they don't. Um, I think that you're going to see a lot of Trump-backed um, politicians running for open seats or running primaries against you know more of the traditional GOP GOP challengers and depending on how that goes it might be messy um, but depending on that goes I think we'll really say whether or not Trump runs in the race which is still the big question yeah you're right that is a big question and I really appreciate both of your respectives Luke and Nathan I think um, as somebody who does not really pay attention to um, you know who is potentially going to be running for for the Republican Party it's it's very nice to hear um, y'all's thoughts uh, but now I want to transition over to, you know, the left side of the spectrum a little bit and uh, we'll, we'll hear from you and then I will, you know, give my little thoughts on these as well and then we'll wrap up. So we'll go right ahead. Yeah, Nathan and Luke, I think you will both agree with me that the real only qualifier I have at this point is that I just hope to God the person that your nominates in 2024 does not have the last name of Trump or, you know, swear fealty to him. And I think so long as it's you know, not Josh Hawley or Christy Noem or one of these people, um, there's at least the chance of having an election um, based on ideas and, and policy rather than just, you know, more Trump populism 2.0. So that, that's what I hope for. Just please nobody with that five letter name on the ticket. <laughs> 
Very simple, very simple wishes from Will. And I think, um, you know, I'm not really sure where I stand on this. I think I'm very interested to see how handling of COVID-19 um, will play into the Republican presidential primary, uh, you know, directly talking about people like Ron DeSantis or um, Kirstie Noem, who were actually, you know, governors during the during the pandemic. I want to see if that will still play a role in voters' minds and if they'll find that important. I think that'd definitely be a bigger problem in the general election, but I digress. Um, looking at these other people on the list here, I definitely am not a big fan of uh, Josh Hawley or Tom Scott or Tom Cotton. I mean, um, they're just not people that I think would, um, I definitely don't care much about them. And I don't see the average moderate voter um, being very interested in them either. I, I don't think they'd have a future outside of a primary. Um, you know, I think I could probably see Mike Pompeo going if he did run on a strict anti, you know, China rhetoric in terms of, you know, being tough on them and in foreign policy and, and such things, because that is something that is definitely becoming more and more important um, in the eyes of the American public as we go on with, uh, with just the, you know, the 21st century. Um, but for Senator Tim Scott, I think it's definitely a possibility, but more of a long shot. And um, for Rick Scott, I would say probably pretty unlikely. Um, but then again, I'm not as up to date on, uh, you know, Demo or on Republican party politics as uh, you are, Luke and Nathan. So um, of course, we'll probably talk about this periodically as you know, important things come up over the next year or so. And then we'll, we'll actually know, we'll have our questions answered. That's the beauty of making predictions. That said, uh, we are out of time for this episode and we're out of topics. So for those of you listening, I hope you enjoyed. It was nice to finally come back after about a month and a half long hiatus. Like I said, life gets busy, but it's always fun to go and talk politics with people here at the Bipartisan Post. That said, hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Have a good one.